Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Stromsky, where every week I host a new guest with unique professions, personal adversity, or even maybe a strong opinion or two. And if you haven't hit the five stars review on Apple Podcasts, please hit it now before you forget. Running a podcast is a surprising amount of work, and more reviews converts into a wider range of future guests. In today's episode, we have the privilege of sitting down with Dennis Torres, a true Renaissance soul. Throughout his life, Dennis has explored an astonishing 64 career paths, each one brimming with its own set of adventures. From humble beginnings running the Santa Monica Pier's merry-go-round to becoming a post office letter carrier, dairy farmer, bartender, and even a commercial pilot, his journey is a remarkable tapestry of experiences. With three captivating autobiographical adventure novels to his name, Dennis joins us to share his extraordinary story of embracing life's diverse opportunity with unwavering enthusiasm. Enjoy. All right. What part of the world are you in? I'm in uh, Virginia, East Coast. Okay. And I assume you're in sunny California? I am. Yeah. Have you spent um, most most of your life there? Uh, originally from New Jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah. What made you uh, make the switch all the way to California? Well, uh, long uh, story. No, it's a short story, actually. Uh, when they shipped me off to Vietnam, I was in the military, and I and I drove out to California where I was being flown to Vietnam. Once I saw the West. To me, there was no turning back. I still love New York. Okay. I, I used to go before I retired. I would go there several times a year. And uh, I still love it. Wouldn't live there. Okay. But I enjoy visiting. But, uh, you know, I'm looking at the Pacific now. Uh, out my window, uh, Zuma Beach. Mm -hmm. The mountains and the sea. And, you know, it, it's just... Uh, you know, I, I don't live in congested Los Angeles. I live in Malibu, which is semi-rural. Thanks for thanks for being on on uh, the podcast. Obviously, so uh, wh what I what I what I usually do is uh, I'll do an intro by myself, which I'll pre-record. It'll come at the beginning of our interview, um, and then from there we'll just talk. I like to kind of just normally talk and. Uh, find a piece of the audio and try to kind of just fade it in so it's kind of natural um mm -hmm. and it's really just the interesting parts of your life and one of the big things i love uh especially with uh people i interview which which i saw from the email was the fact that you've had so many jobs that i find people who have uh many facets many jobs stuff like that kind of not stuck in the same job kind of going not towards your passion, but I don't know if you would, I don't know if this phrase has been coined, but it's a combination of your passion and your skill. If that makes sense. It's something that you learn to love, but you're actually doing something that um, gives you uh kind of like not drive, but uh, something to live for. Mm -hmm. Did that make sense? Sure. Um, and I feel like a lot of people get lost 
this is not the overall thing of my podcast. I just find stuff that I, I find interesting. But that's one thing that's that I love and I feel like should drive more people. And obviously I know people need to be insurance claims adjusters and they need to be like stuff in the world, but uh I don't know. You find you find where you can, um, at least from what I've seen so far. I've always had a curiosity, and curiosity is travel, okay? Uh, even when I was a little kid in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, where I grew up, my grandparents would come in to visit on the train, and I would just look at those tracks and say, if I followed those tracks, I could be all the way in Florida, and I had a yearning to just follow those things and and you know see where it took me. So I did things in my life that interest me, that uh, satisfied my curiosity. Um, and that's why I ended up with so many jobs. Naturally, uh, there were times like when I, I spent 30 years working at Pepperdine University here in Malibu, both as a the head of real estate for them and as a professor in the, um, in the uh, full-time MBA program, mm. uh, teaching three different courses. But at the same time, I continue my career as a mediator and arbitrator of litigated cases. Uh, okay, I have over a thousand attorney client uh, references on my my website, and not just names, uh, sentences, and paragraphs of, of how they like my service. And I also was in real estate, so I put some real estate deals together too. So I, I essentially had four jobs at the same time. Uh, and and do you have a, a family? Well, I'm married to a, a world-renowned psychic. Okay? Oh, okay. You should get her on the show one of these days. Okay, she had uh, clients uh, throughout Congress and even uh, several U.S. presidents, um, celebrities, uh, you know, a Dolly Parton share, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people. So we both officially retired, but, you know, I find that I'm working more than ever. And I've always written my grandfather, who I spent summers with when I was 10 years old on up until uh, uh, later years, was a very famous and successful writer in his own uh, period of time. He wrote for the uh, Jewish Daily Forward and um, plays and books. Uh, his 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 play Yenta Talabenda played uh, in Europe and in Israel and all over the United States. He, he published seventeen thousand poems. I don't know if I got in the genes to be a writer. <laughs> so throughout my life, I uh, have written. When I was in the aviation industry, uh, I wrote for uh, Business Aviation. And I was head of aviation education for a company that produced piloting materials, training programs for pilots and computers for pilots, et cetera. Things mm -hmm. that just me. So now since I've retired, which I retired from my uh, Pepperdine responsibilities in the end of May of 2017, I started writing novels. They're autobiographical novels. <laughs> okay. And they're novels so that uh, I don't offend anybody or get sued by anybody. They're <laughs> fiction based on on uh, experience. So some people ask me, well, how can you call it fiction if it's an autobiographical? So the, the nice thing was, I tell them that this year's Nobel Prize for Literature went to a French woman who only writes autobi autobiographical novels. And that's what it is. So I've I've gotten four books out since I retired. I'm working on a fifth. Okay. And 
I guess when when you were doing all uh, that stuff before, when you were at Pepperdine and uh, you were doing all that real estate stuff, what what was like a work life balance for you? Like what what was like a normal week to you? Uh, I get up uh, normally at uh, three a.m. and I do uh, an hour of yoga and a half hour meditation uh, and some spiritual reading uh, before I go to the office and shower, shave. You know, normal get get in the office. And um, uh, I had a staff of seven, and we we acquired, managed, and disposed of real estate uh, all over the world. Mm-hmm. And most of the real estate were uh, um, came to us via gifts. Somebody would give give it a real estate, and I was a procurer of these things. I put the deal, found them, put the deals together. We managed and disposed them, uh, so people would donate a piece of real estate in exchange for a lifetime income mm-hmm. okay and then the university would manage and dispose of the real estate as they saw fit or, or keep it uh, as an asset uh, income producing asset that type of business is always problems and issues and then finding new people and you know i love finding people and putting deals together and problem solving so that was my normal day and we had uh, six foreign campuses so I, I found a new campus for the university in Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, they sent me to France uh, to look at some of the properties that the government was disposing of to see if we could get one of them for our use. Also in Argentina, and we have Germany, China. So you basically built out all the uh, foreign campuses for Pepperdine throughout the years? Yes, I wouldn't say all of them, some of them, because some existed before I even came there. And then I went to Washington and bought a eight-story building and converted mm-hmm. the university uh, need. And that okay. that's right on Pennsylvania Avenue, four blocks in the White House. Okay. I've probably seen it before. It's across the street from GW. So I guess what made you get into that? Like what was what was the internship? What was like like how did you get to being doing the flipping at that point? When I got out of service, here I am in Los Angeles back from Vietnam and being in Vietnam for a year, it was only a year tour. uh, It's like being somewhere for 10 years. Okay. In other words, it's such a departure from what you're used to that when you come back here, it was like a strange land. Okay. I mean, streets, cars, you know, everything really like, maybe that's how people feel when they spend 20 years in prison, they get out and into the other world. I don't know. But it was very strange. So obviously, I needed uh, to do something for income and get a house and all that. And I looked in the newspapers, and the only job in those days—that's where you had want ads, okay. And the only jobs were for uh, sales, mostly insurance, and me putting on a suit and tie and sell insurance uh, did not excite me. Just one day out of exasperation, I saw a heading that says, "Want to explore the Amazon." Okay, that excited me. And it it was placed by a woman who belonged to the uh, International Explorers Club. And she, uh, for a fee, she helped you get organized to go and explore the Amazon. I decided to do that. So at that time, I had a 62 Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, she put me together with two people who had never, one of them had never been out of California. He was a a 20-something surfer. And the other one was a girl who had backpassed through Africa. I didn't know either one of them. And the three of us 
got in my Volkswagen and drove to the country of Panama from Pasadena, California, before the Pan American Highway was completed. Hundreds of miles of the Pan American Highway was like a dirt trail that you would hike in the, in the mountains. So I'm assuming you had a lot of maps in the car. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, didn't need any. We had a lot of adventures along the way. And then the girl got out in Panama. We left her in Panama. And he and I continued uh, towards the Amazon. We took a boat and lived with the Kuna Indians off the coast of Panama and, and Colombia for a while. And went by dugout canoe <laughs> from the Kunas to the frontier of Colombia. Anyway, long story short, a lot of adventures. Ended up living in the Amazon for months off the land. Oh, he went back. He had to go back. He had a tragedy in the family. So he left me. And then I went to the Amazon alone. Lived in the Amazon for months. Uh, got back and went around South America. Ended up coming back uh, months later on a banana boat out of Esmeraldas, Ecuador, through the Panama Canal, across the Gulf of Mexico to Tampa, Florida. And that's the basis for the first novel I wrote after uh, retiring called uh, The Amazon of Ray Goldberg Rivera. Uh, and uh, all my books are available on Amazon. After that one came out, uh, my next one was on Vietnam. Okay, and that one was called um, There Are No Good Giants. And that title came from a, a poem written during World War II by a captain in the army who basically, having fought in the European theater, realized that the cause of all the war was people's profits. He said, basically, there are no good giants. The bigger, the big countries preying on the smaller ones for profit motive. Um, and so that encompassed my adventures in Vietnam. And I did not want it to be a war story, okay, with shooting and whatever, although you can't help but have some of that what surprised me in vietnam and and it's the basis of me writing that book was that life goes on even though there's a war going on you can have shooting every day in the streets and bombing every day but still people go to work they have children they open their stores they have weddings they have funerals uh, whatever all under the umbrella of this war going on and the difference that makes in their lives when you can't count on a future, you live life very differently. It relieves you of thinking about the future and worrying about the future. So you live in the in the present more. And that's, again, is what I wanted to capture in the book, as well as things that went on, uh, public mm -hmm. executions and, and how the GIs uh, interacted, you know, some shooting themselves in the foot and others uh, taking uh, advantage of all the free, not free, but the low cost sex available and mm -hmm. fracking, killing your own people and whatever. So, so that was bill number two. I wanted to get that out there because people don't think of fighting a war on like a nine to five job. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. Okay. So I would go out during the day, fight at night come home, put on civilian clothes, go to a nightclub, go to a restaurant. I taught English as a second language, okay, at Hoi Viet Me, one of the Vietnamese uh, academies. Um, very different than when you think of the, the newsreels about battles in World War II and the shootings and all this stuff here having a life. They had tailor shops. People would dress in all kinds of fancy clothes, GIs. 
Anyway, it was a whole new culture. Uh, the U.S. government brought, flew in bands to entertain people in the nightclubs. Okay, We had dancing and all this stuff, all sponsored by the U.S. government. Because our paycheck in Vietnam was like, make, we were all like millionaires. We could, you know, the economy was so poor there that, you know, there wasn't anything you couldn't buy or afford. Mm. It, it reminded me of the ancient armies, uh, Greek and Roman, where they, they didn't get paid, the soldiers. Their pay was raping and pillaging the enemy. We didn't have to rape and pillage because every dollar we had was like $100 or $1,000. So essentially the same. And that's what I wanted to capture. My goal in writing is to entertain and educate. So I want to include things in my books that people never thought about or never heard about uh that may have been that they might not have otherwise and lastly to provoke thought along the lines of critical thinking mm -hmm. those are my three objectives and whatever i write uh, okay i want people to not to accept what i my point of view necessarily but to take my point of view and provoke thought yeah give them a fresh perspective on something that's kind of uh like you said, Vietnam, whenever I think of Vietnam, I think of, I don't know, just fighting from trees, but I'm, I'm way after I was born way after the Vietnam, Vietnam War. And basically, I go off of whatever scraps came my way. And I form a vision of something that was either something comical or something, obviously not the war is comical, but the interpretation of what I think Vietnam is compared to someone who was actually there. Like, yeah. The way you describe it, it sounds very similar to MASH, you know, yeah. where the <laughs> surgeons would, it's kind of sort of like what you're explaining. And I was like, it can't actually be like that. But it I mean, is. you saying that it was, and I, I've actually never heard of the perspective of working the nine to five. Um, that's funny. I, I, I didn't know that was, you're right. That is a huge change with World War II, where it was like survival rather than an actual job. That's funny. I, I never thought uh, of it that way. But obviously, in World War Two is more like, a, I don't know how you can compare the two. One is more. Um, but with with all your jobs, um, I guess, have you ever seen a pattern from you? I, I know you you were working multiple jobs sometimes at the same time. Yeah. But when you were working, let's say, uh, one job to the next, what was the point besides getting if you were ever let go but what was the point where you're like this is not this is not my job like well, it's like we it's like we rehearsed this because you gave me a perfect segue to book number three <laughs> okay and the, the segue is this it, book number three covers four jobs that i had mm -hmm. in succession and how i changed from one to the other and the perspective on those four jobs, well, there's plenty of perspectives there, but it was be, it was during the hippie culture, mm -hmm. okay, how the hippie culture interacted. I'll plug myself and tell you that book and answer your question. The third book is called Not Far From the Ocean. And I got that title from one of the jobs I had. The, the first one, when I came back from Vietnam, I, desperate, I had to take a job. And I, I took a job with Pacific Telephone, which was a major telephone carrier at the time. And they hired me as what they call an out rep. Okay, you mm -hmm. leave the office. At that time, the Public Utilities Commission required the phone before required that before the phone company 
could shut off somebody's phone for non-payment, you had to physically go there and notify them that if you don't pay, we're shutting off your phone. And that was my job. Okay. Uh, and the interesting part of it, it was when the, it was in the black ghetto of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then most a lot of people on the welfare and it was a very poor part of Los Angeles. And, and they hired a white guy, even my boss was black, but they hired a white guy because uh, they would not take a black guy seriously. Okay. They trained me before I went out. And this is all in the book, how they, they trained me with things like, You'll be driving the company car, and when you're parallel parking, be very careful because some of the people in that neighborhood will jump in behind your car so you can hit them and they can sue the phone company. And if somebody offers you a drink when you're over at their house, take it and call us and we'll pick you up. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> okay. And when I get out of a car to make a call, People seeing a white face, they, you know, little kids would say, you're going to shut off the electric. You're going to shut off the electric. You know, they just see a white face. It's not good, whatever you're doing. I, I got the title because some young people I met there who are, who are my age in the 20s, athletic, strong, whatever. I asked them, well, what do you guys plan to do with your life? What are you going to do? And they told me they were looking to become shoeshine boys. And I was shocked because I look at them, they could do anything. But the culture they had grown up with had imprisoned them in small thinking. Many people had never experienced having their own phone. They had to use only the neighbor's phone. And they were second, uh, maybe third generation welfare people. Okay. Uh, and I began to see how welfare was a way of imprisoning these people by eliminating competition in the workplace. And I made friends. I did. Needed a girl from from that, which was another experience uh, because she was very religious, and I had to go to her church in order for her to agree to date. Amazed that they worshipped a white Jesus, <laughs> okay. And and uh, anyway, so I I had talked to so many people there, and the the ocean was I don't know uh, I don't know ten ten miles away, five miles away, a quarter on a bus. And many of them had never seen the ocean and thinking somebody living in Los Angeles and has never in their life seen the ocean. You know, it was something, it was an eye opener for me. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got the title. So after working that for so long, and I also became a pilot because the gal who was teaching me the job, the instructor for the phone company, she, she shared with me once that she was a pilot during the war with the Jack and Cochran who led a group of women, and they, their job was to go to the factories, pick up the military aircraft, and fly them to the bases, because the men were over there flying in mm -hmm. the war. And she looked like a librarian to me, envisioning her in a P-51 Mustang, which was the equivalent of a, our greatest fighter planes like that, just blew my mind. I didn't have any money saved up, but I, I took out a loan from a bank and started taking flying lessons and ultimately became a uh, commercial pilot, flight instructor and all that. So I left that job and let's see, what was my second one in order? Yeah, I became a, that's right. The I left that one after a while, got tired of the, you can understand how you get tired of that job. And then I, I became a letter carrier in Santa Monica, a mailman. Mm -hmm. And I met so many, some interesting people along the route uh, whose great stories, but more importantly, 
It captures the cultural change between the old time career letter carriers and the young ones coming in who were hippies. And the old time people hated the hippies and the hippies hated the old timers and made fun of them. And the culture back and forth in the annex where we uh, loaded up the mail was a great. Chairman Mao's Little Red Book was distributed widely at that time. And of course, the, the old timers threw it in the trash. Okay, you can understand that. Okay, even though they held the mail as sacrosanct. Okay, and yet the same time they, when Playboy magazine would come out, the old timers would take it home for the night and read it before they delivered it. Okay, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and and the hippies going back and forth about culture, uh, you know, uh, Americanism and all that. So those stories are in there. It, it's kind of like a. Uh... Older version of Twitter, like trying to control the narrative, but on a much the mailmen were the Elon Musk of controlling basically who gets what, but on a much more mailman level. I love that. Keep on going. Yeah, I'm sorry hated, to interrupt it. By and large, they hated their job. Okay. Uh, but it was it was security and they were going to work towards retirement. Okay. Uh and the young people, the young hippies, to them, it was just another gig, and they never planned on being there the rest of their lives. Uh, so it, interesting dynamics. And that's what I was covering in there, the cultural uh, perspectives of both. Both, And I was sort of in the middle, okay, because I was young. and But on the other hand, I was a, a vet. That the older people respected the vet, and I was a couple of years older than some of that. So then I left the mail, that one, because a fun job I opened up running the merry-go-round on the Santa Monica Pier, okay, which is an iconic merry-go-round. Mm -hmm. And I moved to the beach. I found a, a little pad on the beach, and the beach at that time, uh, Venice and Santa Monica, you might have heard of them, but it was hippie haven mm -hmm. with all the um, communes and the Harry Krishners and the free love and the... Uh, see-through blouses and the smoking dope and all that stuff mm -hmm. and up above that iconic merry ground were seven apartments that the city who owned the merry ground and the pier rented out to some very interesting uh, people who a few of whom became extraordinarily successful in their lives as writers and uh, and uh, filmmakers and whatever and then one night when i was run running it there was an event actors it was called actors and others for uh backing i i i have a mental block right now which president it was which presidential candidate and i met an actor over there who said I, he was looking for a roommate in hollywood on sunset boulevard and the rent was so cheap for a nice place right on sunset strip i said okay i'm ready and then I became, I moved to Hollywood and became a writer for the uh, number one underground newspaper in the country and for a teen set magazine covering rock, the rock musicians of the day, The Doors, uh, who uh, Frank Zappa got involved in, in that whole scene. So, so that, and that was my, uh, that's all in the book, uh, Not Far From the Ocean. And I, I assume you're already writing a fourth one then? Uh, no, fifth one. Fifth my, one, okay. okay. My fourth one is, here's a story behind the fourth. And then I'll I'll tell you some of the jobs that I've had uh, out of those 64 and why I, why I counted up the six. Well, there was actually more, but uh, I ended up uh, at the other, at the end of, of uh, not far from the ocean, meeting my wife 
and we got married. We met uh, at Barney's Beanery, which was like a roadhouse diner, very popular for people who wanted to become stars and rich and wannabes and people who had already made it in the Hollywood scene. Uh, we went home together that night. Six weeks later, we were married. We're married 54 years now. <laughs> okay. We, we got into real estate and we ended up here uh, in Malibu. And I got a job for Pepperdine University because I don't like traffic and all that stuff. And so um, we had our own real estate company for a long time when we got married with over 100 salespeople in it. So when I, we got to Malibu, I got a job with Pepperdine University. I was teaching in the full-time MBA program. Two courses at that time, one was called Negotiation and Resolution of Business Disputes, and the other one was called um, um, uh, oh, Global Finance, where I would take people to Goldman Sachs in New York and the stock exchange and all this. And then the, the, the uh, dean asked me to teach a course in ethics. They didn't have one in ethics. They thought we need one in the business school on ethics. So I wrote to several professors around the country to find out how they taught ethics, what their syllabus was, what textbooks, and I didn't like anything I got. They were generous, but it didn't it didn't it didn't go, uh, it didn't go with me because it's the same old thing. This is right. This is wrong. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. And I also did research, and it said by the time a person gets to a college level. They've been told throughout their life what's right and wrong, and they've made the decision what's right and wrong, and to, to teach them right and wrong is worthless. So I decided I have to do it a different way. And my approach would be not to say this is right and this is wrong, but to say every choice has a consequence. So when you pick the, when you make the choice, you, you're also making the choice for the consequence. And, and there is no such thing as right or wrong. Okay. Well, Pepperdine is a Christian institution there. So, you know, they, they don't like the concept of nothing right or wrong, but the way I taught it was okay with them. <clears throat> so for instance, the students would say, well, I, I say, name something that's, that's wrong. And they always said same thing, every class, uh, killing. I said, geez, well, the government sent me to Vietnam and told me to kill people there. And they said, well, those were bad people. I said, well, what defined you as bad? <laughs> yeah, I said they didn't come here in California to start killing my family. You know, they had, and you know, we we would explore these things. And I always told them, don't believe a thing I say. Just think about it, experiment in your own life, think about it, and you know, make your own decisions. So the course became. I had to pick a name for the course. I said, if I pick a course ethics or something, nobody's going to come. Okay. <laughs> And they have a rule there in the in the uh, university that if you start a new course, it's an experiment for a couple of years until you have enough people that the course has great demand, and then they'll put it in the catalog. Well, after the first semester, I had so many people that it, it was in, in the catalog, and the course became the most uh, uh, desired course in the program. And the name I picked for it to attract students was acquiring wealth, power success morally and ethically okay and so of course they all want to acquire wealth and power and success and so that the fourth book i wrote is based on that and it's called the course okay and it's um 
Uh, I wrote it as a novel so that, again, nobody sues me and nobody gets mad, whatever. So it, it takes place at a fictitious university in a fictitious town in Arizona. And it's a, the subtitles, Acquiring Wealth, Power, Success, Morally and Ethically. So it's the course. And it became a bestseller on Amazon. That's the, the fourth one. I figured when I wrote it, at least my students would buy it because they like it. <laughs> so... And now I'm working one, on one uh, in the judicial system based on my experience. Uh, I have a master's degree in the, from Strauss Institute of Dispute Resolution at Pepperdine School of Law, Dispute Resolution, an MDR, Master of Dispute Resolution. As I said, I've done hundreds and hundreds of cases, lawsuits. And I, that's, I virtually did only lawsuits from medical practice to slip and falls to insurance, you name it. And that's what I'm working on now, how the judicial system no longer serves the majority of people because it is such a big business that if somebody cheated you, Michael, out of $200,000, which is a lot of money, um, you cannot afford to risk the the cost of suing them. Mm -hmm. In other words, it might cost you 200000 or 150000 to take the chance that you might get that money back. It's a provision in there to help you. And how I went about settling lawsuits that uh, if you look at my website over there on, on that, which is DennisTorres.com, you'd read how some people never thought they would settle their lawsuit and how I got them to, to see that it was in their best interest. And uh, so that's the book I'm working on now. How about we just sum it up with what was your favorite job of all those jobs? Obviously, the most not obviously the most fun job was running a merry-go-round. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there were skill sets in running a merry-go-round, and especially in those days. One of the major skill sets is how do you get off the merry-go-round and on the merry-go-round when it's spinning around so fast? Okay. And learning that skill to me <laughs> was a thrill. And of course, I met people from all over the world because the pier is a magnet for tourists. And tourists, okay. And uh, I was single, and uh, you know, met a lot of uh, young girls too that like to ride the merry-go-round. So that was fun. To me, I liked mediation, arbitration, and I was an arbitrator for a long time as well. I liked it because of the challenge of getting people who who are so polarized that they they don't even want to be in the same room with the other person and that they're and that they uh they're so invested in the war that they can't even fathom the idea of settling because maybe for five years they got up every morning and they had a purpose defeat that other person what's and, the expression uh too busy looking at the trees to see the forest yeah so they were focused on that and if they settled the lawsuit what are they going to do the next day when they get up? What's their, what's their drive? And it's a terrible lawsuits are war, lots of casualties. So even though I didn't like almost every time I would go into start a mediation, I'd say, why am I doing this? Cause I knew it was going to be, it was going to be a lot of um, demands made and, and fighting. And I knew it was always going to be same where you come back and they say, don't tell me anything, but yes or no, there's a party going to take my demand or not. And I knew they wouldn't. And that my job was just to keep them there and work the process. Don't worry about what they say to me. Just Whittle work. them down. Yeah. And so those challenges I liked, it was a double-edged sword because, you know, it was it was stressful. Even though I know how to handle stress, it was still, lawyers would abuse me, <laughs> okay? 
but I saved a lot of misery for people because they were miserable, but they had a purpose. They were going to get the other side. I just had a natural propensity of how to get inside their heads and to reach them. Okay. I mean, so there's going to be a lot of good stories in there and how that came about. Like just one that pops in my mind, it, it involved a family with uh, six siblings against six siblings. The idea was one of the siblings, and I don't want to mention uh, the true countries and everything because all these things are private, so it, it'll be in the book. Uh, one of them came over to this country, worked hard, and every time she made money, she would bring another one over from the third world country and another, help him get a house and a job, whatever. And then they had a dispute, and it was terrible. Okay, just terrible. Uh, one sibling wanted to kill uh, the other and said, if I was in my home country, I'd kill her because I could get away with it, but I, I, I don't want to go to prison here. And we reached a stalemate. We weren't getting anywhere, and I didn't know what to do. But my instinct overcame me, which it had many times in my process here. And I just looked at the woman, and I said, hug me. And she was shocked. I mean, you don't, you don't go to a mediation expecting that. And she said, she looked at me, she said, I don't hug anybody but my husband. <laughs> and the husband looked at her and says, hug him. And that hug out was enough to, to break the tension and go on towards settlement. And they all thanked me on both sides, all that. They said, we have a long way to go to heal that, but they, you know, the, the war was over. And there are many stories of me that will be in the book of similar things where we're coming up with novel approaches and instinctual things. And sometimes I had to sit down and go through Buddhist philosophy, uh, get people's perspectives. And, and other times it was pure uh, reality. People, they say, no, I'm going to get the person. I said, well, I'll ask your attorney over here if he guarantees you're going to win. Of course, no attorney is going to guarantee a win, not with a jury. And then say, well, you're investing X number of dollars for, uh, for uncertainty, and here you have certainty. And if you win in court, the court doesn't give you the money, okay, you still got to collect it. Whereas if you settle now, you'll get the money. You know, So some of it was logic, other times it was instinct and philosophy and uh, spiritualism and and uh, I, I'm going to also put in that book on how I see that we can change the system. There was a time where lawyers had a single phone instead of, you know, multiple phones coming in. And there was a time that uh, they got paid uh, a fixed price. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you want a divorce, it's, you know, it's 500 bucks or whatever it was. $5,000, whatever, changed the legal system a lot was the fact that people started having hourly fees. Okay, now you see a conflict of interest. The more, the more I stretch out the law, the lawsuit, the more money I make. Yeah. And the bar associations, instead of being there to protect the citizens, are basically as a trade organization to make money for their for their members. So whereas you would think that they're going to help you resolve things, it's the opposite. In fact, bar associations, associations tell their members, you have to, and this is their quote, zealously advocate. And zealously advocating is sort of the antithesis of working towards settlement. So anyway, that's going to be my book number five. 
No, that sounds awesome. And definitely like a good read. I mean, they all sound like good reads. So one one question I like to wrap up the episode is what is something that your parents did that you would like to pass on to the next generation of people? And what's something that you would want to do differently? Like something that uh, your parents did that maybe should be done a different way or something new, like going camping or more religious, something like that. Well, we weren't religious, uh, although I was brought up Jewish and bar mitzvah and all that, but uh, we weren't religious. In fact, I re just recently found out why we weren't religious, and that is because the era of my grandfather, who I mentioned was a writer for the forward, uh, that they were socialists, and they felt that the essence of Jew Judaism was to help their fellow man, and capitalism was not helping any, nor was communism, so they were you know, socialists. Uh, and so they also felt that uh, they wanted to um, integrate with the new with the new country, America, and that the customs of the religion would separate them. So they were definitely identified as Jews and you know whatever, but they just weren't um, uh, locked into the ceremonial parts of it. So, but it's a different era. It was a different era because uh, the people that you you live with were basically Europeans. They came from different backgrounds, but America was basically a, pretty much the same type of people. And we we grew up in a, I grew up in a working class town. And even though we had different religions and uh, uh, people from different countries, they were still mostly Europeans. And so the you know we played outside nobody ever worried about crime and you know that type of thing so the, the to answer your question that we, we sat down to dinner uh we didn't get uh, we didn't have media to interfere we talked about our lives and you know whatever uh and we respected the police we respected the law we respected the the clergy you know <laughs> something that's that's analogous uh, to that story and i hope i don't over go over time here with you is there was a tv show called dragnet i don't you probably never heard I, of it no i know it okay with jack webb and uh and the beginning of the show they say every case that they they're portraying came out of the police files here in, of los angeles well one of the one of the shows, Dragnet, was all about a kid who had stolen a comic book off a newsstand. Okay, and uh, if you went to the police today and called up, hey, some kid stole the comic book uh, from uh, the newsstand, they would laugh at you. They're not going to send anybody out. In those days, it was a big crime because they said this is a juvenile delinquent and it's going to be an entry into it. So it was a wholly different era. You mm -hmm. have to. See Somebody just shot 10 people and they said, well, we'll be there in a half hour today. Okay. So, so when you say it was a sense of family and a sense of fairness and a sense of uh, right or wrong in the culture that was there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's where I came out of. And everything I've done is a sense of fairness. Okay. And that's how I settled cases too, a sense of fairness. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah, yeah. You say Dragnet. My dad was, or he... To be fair, he would probably still listen to it if it was on 24-7 Dragnet, uh, The Shadow, uh, Johnny Dollar. 
Wow. Uh, radio shows. That's radio shows. They yeah. The dollar and, and, uh, and the, uh, was it the green, green Hornet or something? Yeah. Something like that. But, uh, yeah, that was a great answer. Um, the fat, but, uh, fat man or something. He got on the scale, weight so-and-so. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you. I really uh, appreciate it. it. And, and just uh, as always, I've learned so much more from a just like you say, a different perspective. Okay, and if you uh, if you want to talk to an interesting psychic who has great experiences, let me know, and I'll see if I can get my wife to do an interview with him. Sounds good. I'll get that contact information. But uh, have a good have a good night. You as well. Thank you. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.